podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the road ahead on healthcare. And Richard, last week, we witnessed what a lot of people are speculating was the last gasp for Republican efforts to get rid of Obamacare. Um, there were three different options on offer at various points. One was repealing and replacing the law. One was doing just the repeal and leaving a two-year window in which they could design a replacement. And then there was what was called skinny repeal, which would have just been getting rid of the individual mandate, um, part of the employer mandate, and the medical device tax. So let's just start there. If one of those three had passed, I mean, pick the one that you think is best, even if that had occurred, uh, would we have been out of the woods? In other words, were any of these proposals, to your mind, up to the challenge of actually solving the core problems in American health care? Well, I think the answer is, at best, maybe, probably not. Um, look, the first thing I think that one has to deal with is to remember that there are two major issues that came out of the Obamacare situation. The one which gets most of the public attention because people get involved with it on a day-to-day basis is the individual mandate, and it has many problems. One of the problems is, of course, if you don't take the particular mandate, you're forced to pay a tax, which gives rise to the situation, why is it that anyone ever should have have the right to tax me for not doing something? And the answer is you have to impose the tax in order to keep the cross-subsidies alive, which come when you have younger, healthier people paying in premiums above what is needed to cover them in order to subsidize everybody else. And so, you know, you can get rid of the mandate. You then get rid of the subsidy. You solve the problem on one half of the situation, but you don't solve the problem on the other half of the situation. You now have people who've been cut off from their previous private plans. They're embedded in this particular system. And all of a sudden, the subsidy that they were going to get to some extent is going to be gone because the source of payment is going to be out. So you're not going to solve that problem. The second problem that you're not going to solve is with or without the cross mandates, what the Obama administration did and what none of these bills except the total repeal bill will do is to actually look at the mix of services and and particular benefits that are provided under the various versions, the blue or the platinum, the gold and so forth. All of them are too rich for their own good. And so what happens is the companies do not have the option to tamp down on the kinds of benefits they give. They have to give this very rich practice. If they can't move in that particular area, the area in which they will tend to move is on the size of the deductible. And in cases of individuals and families, it all depends on states. But you see numbers tossed around like $6,000 per person on the deductible side, $12,000 for a family. And if you're aiming at the bottom of the market in terms of income, uh, these numbers are simply too large to be very, very effective. And so what you needed to do was to decide what it was that you could shuck out of these particular programs. And I've said hundreds of times now to no effect, the first thing you do is you look at a set of benefits that are put in under the Obamacare legislation that you don't find even in the richest voluntary plans. That's a pretty good sign that they cost more than they're worth. And you take those things out so as to try to cut back on the level of coverage that's given so that the plans now have a chance to 
to work. The second thing you have to do is to allow people to recruit folks in there. And paradoxically, the decision on the part of the Obamacare people to limit the so-called medical expenses, the administrative expenses of the system, to 15% is too small a number to do a number of things, including recruiting new people into the program. And if you can't recruit them in, the very heavy compliance cost, a fixed cost, has to be divided amongst a smaller number of individuals. That means you have to raise the premiums and you have to raise the deductibles so you get where you're going under that particular case. So you're not going to solve this problem unless you dig more deeply. Now, if you decided to go on the repeal route and just get rid of the whole thing with a player to be named later, uh, you're going to have to face the horrendous problem of what you're going to do with people who have gotten huge subsidies today, are going to get no subsidies tomorrow, and you have no idea what plans are going to be put into their place. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away is a famous biblical maxim. What they forgot to mention in that maxim is that it's a lot easier to give than it is to take away. And so when you start putting these plans into place and people start jumping on them, nobody thinks about the long-term solvency stuff. Then when you want to get rid of them in order to make sure that the overall balance is going to be correct, you're going to find this huge problem. So that's the first thing. Second is, suppose we start looking at the taxes. Generally speaking, in Epstein's moral universe, you never have a special tax on a particular commodity unless it's to offset the burdens that that commodity puts on the system, as with smog, or if it's an offset for a special benefit given to the fellow who is paying that tax, like a tax for the use of particular roles, commonly roads called a toll. In this particular stage, the device tax had a very bad effect because it was an excise tax, which you'd have to pay for a startup even if you were losing money, and you got to get rid of that. Okay, you get rid of it. Well, you've got to make up that money from somewhere else. And one of the things that we've discovered is that people are very reluctant under these particular cases um, to, to essentially go back to general revenues to pick up the shortfall because that means a general political tax and peace that nobody wants. So you get locked in on that dimension as well. And, and, you know, well, what else could you possibly do? Well, there's the cruise alternative, which in principle I like, but got excoriated from the other side. And what he said is, so long as you offer one of the plans required by Obamacare, you could then offer the plan that you would want to do with very different characteristics. And so why are people so opposed to that when it gives you increased consumer reports? Because it's roughly tantamount to the repeal of the mandate. The folks who are going to take these other plans are people who are right now subsidizing everybody else. They pull out and the basically cross-subsidy system falls apart. So the lesson that you have to learn from this is a system design matter, is everybody's in favor of taking care of pre-existing conditions, having equitable rates. But the moment that requires cross-subsidies, you lock yourself in and you can't fix the system except at enormous difficulty. And that's the problem that we have now. Uh, the Republicans are trying to repeal something, and all the arguments which were terrific for never starting it were when there was a much stronger system of private health care in place than there is today for repealing it. You've got to fight those particular issues. And frankly, uh, the conservatives like Cruz and Rand Paul said, this is too, too big. And then guys like Susan Collins, she comes up on the other side and said, I can't go along with this because there are too many people in the short run who are going to lose coverage. So the two wings of the Republican Party fall apart. And the Democrats, of course, are the party of no when it comes to questions of reform. And you take a couple of Republicans and add them to the Democrats, and essentially you get a preservation of a status quo ante that nobody wants because the exchanges will continue to fail on the one hand and the Medicaid side, which I haven't talked about yet, will run into tremendous difficulties as well. 
to the point you made a moment ago about these issues getting more difficult as you get further down the road with them. In the aftermath of the legislative failure, the president has said that he'll consider letting what he calls the insurance company bailouts uh, lapse. These are the cost-sharing subsidies the government gives to insurance companies for the coverage of low-income people. And there's a policy dimension and a legal dimension here, Richard, because on the policy side, people say this is going to throw the markets into chaos. But on the legal side, there's a reasonably strong case that these payments aren't actually authorized by the underlying law. Where, where do you come down on that? Well, I mean, the transfer payments are clearly in great difficulty, and those were the ones that were struck down, I think, by a decision in the District of Columbia, uh, because there is no mechanism that allows you to take the money from sources unrelated to the healthcare system to put it into it. What they thought when they put this particular thing together was naivete itself. They realized that one of the many terrible my editorial comment, reforms was that you have to take all comers and if there is a, a list of comers that is too large for your capacities, essentially you've got to randomize whom you select. Some companies would get better pools than other companies. What the government thought was that the companies with the better pools would be making money and the companies with the worst pools would be losing money. You tax the one to pay the other. So what you do is you try to equalize through the back end while having an open enrollment policy at the front end. The difficulty is everybody's losing money. Uh, so if I'm losing 10%, then you're losing 20%. Uh, having me subsidize you is just not going to solve the problem. It's going to continue to have both companies losing money, and it's going to create an administrative nightmare on top of it. Well, this is just one of the many design features that was built into this. And what's so tragic about the Republicans is even though they know the exchanges are completely unglued and that the public subsidies are not sustainable because of the cross-subsidies that are involved, uh, they never was able to articulate that case to the public at large. So the only question was lots of people, 22 million people are going to lose coverage. Of that 22 million, the number is surely bogus uh, because many of them are people who trapped in the system who just love to get out. That's the cross-subsidy problem. And with respect to many of the other people, uh, they would probably want to go into one of these cruise-like plans if you gave it to them. And if, in fact, you shut down the taxes and the compliance costs, a private market might come back again to pick up even more of the slack. So unless you know what the counterfactuals are, you don't know what the losses are going to be. But if you're a Democrat, you cite a number, and all of a sudden you're an authority. And if you're a Republican, you don't respond to the number, and all of a sudden you're a fool. You mentioned Medicaid a moment ago. It's often overlooked how much of the realized effect of Obamacare owed to new people who had been added to the Medicaid rolls. And of the big points of debate in the healthcare fight, uh, one of the biggest was this notion of putting something called per capita caps on Medicaid spending for our listeners who aren't versed in the nuances of Medicaid. Can you explain what those are and why they'd be important? Oh, yes. I mean, look, there are two ways in which you could try to fund a health care system when you generate an entitlement, starting first with Medicare and then moving back to Medicaid. What people decided to do is we're going to give you a set of benefits. You go in there. We'll give you a set of administered prices, one sum or another. And the more you get, the more we will pay. And then we'll just come up with general revenues to do it. With Medicare, to take the earlier plan, the original expectation was that 50% would come from fees and 50% would come from subsidies. 
subsidies? Well, they were wrong on that. 75% at least comes from subsidies. And the total bill was much, much larger than anybody thought because when people are paying only a fraction of the cost that they need, their willingness to consume goes over. On the Medicaid side, what we did is we probably added huge numbers of people, 18 million or so to the rolls, many of whom were in less dire circumstances than the other person were there. Uh, so we have a wonderful column by Alyssa Finley a couple of days ago in the Wall Street Journal and then Governor LePage, I guess is his name, from Maine doing it today and say, you've got so many people in there, uh, we can't take care of really sick people because the queuing mechanism is completely inappropriate and all you're doing is building this thing up and whatever they do, we have to pay the bills. So you cut down on the doctor's fees, they drop out of the system and you then ration by queuing. Everybody just has to wait. If you're going to do a universal health care system like Canada, you have to put in dollar caps in order to make sure. And then you tell people you have to economize underneath those caps. What the Americans are trying to do is to have no caps and universal coverage, and that's an explosive pair. And so the moment you tell them it's one both or none are the only possible things. Uh, you get all sorts of abuse hurled upon your face. And so what we do is we have a lot of people, including Democratic senators like, or Democratic in quote, Republican senators like Susan Collins say, I can't get rid of the Medicaid subsidies. Indeed, I want to expand them. You have to do this. And if you had never expanded the Medicaid rolls early on in 2010, you wouldn't have to cut them back today. But it's the same thing about Job's maxim. It's a lot easier to give than it is to take away. And so that the Medicaid system, which is now grinding down because it cannot deal with the excess demand on the patient side and with the wholesale withdrawal physicians on the other side, leaving endless queues, it's starting to look like any system you have in Russia or Venezuela or Cuba or whatever it is. You start creating a system of prop of positive rights. You have this right to health care. And you don't talk about the funding aspect. What happens is when the market goes into equilibrium or disequilibrium, what you now have is very, very long queues and people with very limited means not being sure as to where they can go. So both sides of this thing are breaking down. Look, I said this, I mean, I feel like a broken record. In 2009, when I had a debate on this thing at NYU, I said this is exactly what's going to happen. If you know any Anything about the long-term stability and dynamics of complex systems, you can see that this thing is built to crash, and that's what's happened. One of the real noticeable shifts in public sentiment since Obamacare passed is that the electorate really seems to now regard the coverage for pre-existing conditions as virtually non-negotiable. And as you mentioned earlier, the way that the ACA skinned that particular cat was by building this elaborate web of cross-subsidies by which the healthy, low-risk people pay more for their insurance, so you offset the high cost of those who had more extensive needs. One thing we haven't talked about, though, on that front, is there, in your judgment, a more market-friendly way to ensure coverage for those people? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to HIPAA, which was a health insurance and some of those statutes back in the Clinton years, and it had two parts of it. One was supposed to deal with the pre-existing condition situations where new companies would turn down people with desperate situations, and the other with privacy. Well, the privacy stuff was very important. The pre-existing conditions problem prior to 2010 was, generally speaking, not regarded as all that big, and it was something you could handle. There are two ways in which this can be handled technically. Uh, one of them, which I developed in 1997 at the same time that John Cochran, my now colleague at Hoover, did, was what you do is you allow the new company, when it gets a 
customer or a, an employee who has a higher than normal risk profile to receive some kind of a lump sum payment from the old employer uh, so that his costs are not going to reflect this. And so if you then sign up very early with the old company and you have this guaranteed renewal provision, you could use interfirm subsidies of a rational basis in order to deal with the problem. And I think that's a pretty good solution. The second thing that you can do is attach some conditions to the ability to dart in and out. Under the Obamacare program, if you want to get an operation tomorrow, you could sign up today. Once it's over, you can sign off again. There are no waiting periods and there are no extension periods. Waiting periods, I think, are much more controversial to most people because you could die in the interim. I understand that. Uh, But uh, the extension period should not be. And so one way in which you can do this is to say to people, we're going to do two things to you. One is we're going to say, if you come on to one of these programs, you can come on and get off. You have to stay for a minimum period of a year. And then the second thing that you can say is if you get a major procedure that costs you X dollars in that particular point, then for each of the 11 months, we can charge you some, say, 5% so as to recover back some of that thing in order to reduce the opportunism. This will exclude some people who justifiably have these problems, but it would stop the kind of abuse. But again, the technical weakness on the Republican side and the Democratic version of the world, which is anytime an insurance market imposes a condition, it's just gouging people, it's cherry picking, it's doing this, that, or the other thing. This combination of ignorance on the one hand and sort of resolute hostility to any reform on the other means that we're again stuck with the status quo ante. Uh, the other provision is the you stay on your parents' policy until 26. That's immensely popular. And what happens is it's so popular that most insurance companies know that it's relatively cheap highly desired, and they're willing to throw it in in a voluntary market anyhow, which is the sign that this thing is good. So when you start seeing where these markets have sprouted holes in them, unless you're prepared to get rid of the moral hazard and the adverse selection problems with this and the um, knowledge problems that you have on the part of the way in which agencies work, you won't solve it. One thing you should do, and this was proposed but it's not going through, is start to allow interstate competition that is competition across state lines for issuing these programs. Right now, uh, the quid pro quo for uh, supporting Obama payer by the insurance companies was that they would keep their local monopolies. And so that's yet another structural feature, which is, is sort of beyond repair. This whole thing is watching a tragedy play out in slow motion. Uh, you get Democrats who are insistent upon keeping this thing. You get Republicans who don't know how to change it. You get a president who's so clueless he doesn't understand what the problem is. He says, I'll sign anything, but cannot contribute intelligently to the debate because he doesn't know really what's going on. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. The Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. But the, the level... This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.